If you uh, recall, last week we spent a significant amount of time on verse 9 of chapter 4. Verse 9 represents what we said to be the last of a series of seven kind of quickly stated commands that we saw in verses 4 through 9. These commands, in a way, they sum up the teaching of the entire book. If, if the Philippians will just be obedient to these things, then they will be rightly applying the teaching of the entire book of Philippians. In the verse we looked at last week, we saw that the final real contextual command of, uh, of the book was to practice these Things. And as we said then, this, this really is a summation command for the book of Philippians. If they will be careful, if we will be careful to diligently apply everything that we have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul, then the Philippians will by necessity obey everything that they've learned from Paul throughout the letter. And the section that we're going to get into today is a fairly unique section in the book, let alone the rest of Scripture, and indeed, actually, all of the letters that we have available to us in all of antiquity from the Greco-Roman time. In Philippians 4, 10 through 19, we see Paul responding to the monetary gift that the Philippian believers sent with Epaphroditus when Epaphroditus delivered uh, the update on their church and the questions that they had for Paul. This section, verses 10 through 19, it's kind of like a little, like a thank you letter within the letter, even though he never actually says thank you. And he wants to, he wants to show his appreciation for the concern and love that they have expressed towards him. And this response is one of those reasons that Paul undertook the writing of this book. And it really does stand apart from anything else in the letter and anything else in any of Paul's letters. In fact, one commentator even said, nowhere, nowhere else in all of Paul's letters, nor in all of the letters of antiquity that have survived until the present, is there any other acknowledgement of a gift that can compare with this one in terms of such a tactful treatment of so sensitive a matter. It is such a unique and interesting section that many critical scholars have decided that Verses 10 through 19 actually represent a completely separate letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians that some later scribe just kind of tacked in there to keep all of his writings to Philippians together. Others have pointed to the fact that there is no way that Paul would wait until the end of the letter to bring this up, because if you are truly grateful for something, then it's just kind of rude to say, all of the things that you want to say first and then just kind of tack on at the end. Oh, by the way, thanks so much for that gift. I would just communicate that the gift, you know, wasn't actually that important, wouldn't it? Or that it, maybe that it wasn't enough of a gift. But this criticism just stems from not really understanding the culture that Paul is writing in. And, and it's kind of imposing our cultural learned norms of etiquette on a foreign culture. There is not actually a single shred of textual evidence for this kind of thinking. So if you've heard of that argument before, know that there is not a single ancient manuscript that would indicate that this might be a separate letter that was added in later. But that criticism does just go to show how different a passage like this appears to people 
who don't come to Scripture with a real understanding that Scripture's primary author is in fact God. We, of course, do not believe that it is any coincidence that this last major section of the book comes uh, where it comes, and even comes after this particular imperative that we looked at last week in verse 9. Even though there are no commands, no imperatives in the section that we'll be looking at today, what we do see is an example an example in Paul that is essential for every believer to follow. So, fresh on the heels of the command to follow the example of Paul, we now see in Paul an example that is of the utmost importance for every Christian. To follow Paul in this is essential for each of us in our ability to walk through this life filled with the same unceasing joy that we see in Paul. It is essential for our witness to others. It is essential for our testimony. It adds strength to the gospel that we proclaim. When we tell people of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we proclaim to them that we understand ourselves to be saved from eternal wrath, from the eternal wrath of God in hell, and that now we not only no longer stand as not condemned, but we are also children of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we are truly to be believed in this, then we had better have lives that are following after the example that we see in Paul here, or our words will truly ring hollow. And what we are talking about here is the example of godly Christian contentment. It's actually difficult to imagine a characteristic that should set Christians apart from the rest of the world more than the issue of contentment. The world in which we now live actually runs on the assumption that all people are at least in some way discontent and always will be. In fact, if every single person in the country were to suddenly apply the principles that we're going to be talking about today, the economy would collapse. But it's fine. it'll be fine if all of you do. That won't mess it up. The success of every major retailer, uh, Amazon, Walmart, Target, of every social media outlet, of every streaming service, of every restaurant, coffee shop, car dealership, all of their success is dependent on a culture full of people who are all convinced that they are not, in fact, okay where they are. That they need, they, they need people to believe that they aren't quite as happy as they could be. That there is something else that if they, if they just had it, then they would be good. We are thankful. We can, we can be thankful for the relative ease of going to Amazon or Walmart or even Target. Because if we discover that something is broken, we can quickly replace it. And we can do that with almost anything these days. As last week, we had a doorknob in our house that wasn't working. The mechanics on the inside were broken, so nothing would happen when you turned it. So my wife got online, ordered another one. It came a couple days later. We installed it, and it was taken care of. It was relatively painless, but if this was the only way that everyone used retailers, retailers would not survive, or they would at least not succeed very well. If everyone who shopped at Walmart just went in with the idea of, there's one thing that I need, and then they came out with that one thing, then the owners of Walmart wouldn't have been able to spend $4.5 billion to buy the Broncos this last week. 
Now, these people are confident, these companies are confident that they have built their business on the fact that Americans are not content enough for that. That they will walk into Walmart and they will be convinced by the commercials they've seen throughout the week or the products advertised on, on television and online that there are other things that they truly need. They'll see other products strategically displayed on end caps and they'll see that the prices have been rolled back. And, and you'll get there and you'll picture yourself in this shirt or in this chair or watching something on this TV. And you'll begin to believe that having this item is actually important. This item that you didn't even know about before you came in to buy a toothbrush now has registered some level of importance in your heart. And Amazon knows that you might just go to their website for some certain thing initially, but then you'll quickly see all of the other items displayed, that have, they've been carefully selected based upon your browsing history and what you've expressed interest in before in big, colorful pictures all over the screen, and they'll say they're on sale now. These companies wouldn't say it this way, but every single major vendor is dependent on appealing to mankind's sin nature and the ease in which we practice discontentment and are prone to idolatry. They need that in us. Lack of contentment actually isn't merely even seen in terms, uh, merely in terms of possessions. Though that is definitely one of the biggest areas to look at. We're going to concentrate mostly today on the fact that it also drives the modern psychological movement. The way we think about ourselves and even most political advertising that you see. The idea that everyone is entitled to the same amount of happiness and personal confidence Culture creates this certain set of ideals for what it means to be a truly whole person. And as they present what that type of person looks like in magazines and on talk shows, everyone who doesn't look like that recognizes a deficiency in themselves. And they immediately seek help to gain whatever it is that they need in their personal or spiritual or emotional life to truly be whole. That's all the language of contentment. It's what you see in everyone who is rallying around the current cultural concepts of identity and self that are so prevalent in our world. If you've heard any of the interviews with Carl Truman that he's done surrounding his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he's constantly bringing up the fact that the question, do you feel satisfaction in your current employment, is a question that would not make sense to most men in most cultures throughout most of history. And that's because satisfaction would have been based more on actual physical human needs instead of perceived psychological ones. And say, well, what do you mean? Am I satisfied? Right? I pay the bill. You know, the job pays the bills, puts a roof over our head, it feeds my children. The job does what the job is supposed to do. It satisfies the condition for my family's physical existence. The way people currently think about careers, think about relationships, is totally based on a modern psychological idea about personal contentment and what it should look like. Appealing to personal discontentment is seen in most political messages also. Right? That's the rallying cry you're seeing right now. Right? You, you want to be able to end the life of the baby inside of you so that it doesn't interfere with having the career you've always wanted, don't you? 
You want to be able to have the latest phone and all of the things that make for a happy life, but it's really hard when you're constantly being asked to pay back your student loans. You want others to be forced to recognize the gender that you believe yourself to be, that you can only finally be who you've always known you truly are if they will just do that. Well, then you better get out and vote to make sure that that happens. And this is the political path to contentment. As the world continues to exist and grow in this perpetual state of never being satisfied, as it continually creates new needs for us, as it constantly forms new idols and then places them prominently before everyone and then convinces them of a new need that they never realized that they had until this moment, as it constantly involves us in this whirlwind of ever-growing needs and wants to which there will never be an end, as society continues to dig new holes of discontentment for us in every area of our lives, even in places where it never used to be possible to be discontent, as this continues, it becomes even more important for every Christian to display a life of anxiety-free, peaceful, godly contentment in Christ. And not just for the sake of our testimony, though that is important, but because this is the fruit of truly understanding and embracing the reality of the benefits of the gospel that we have believed. The Puritan author Jeremiah Burroughs, in his fantastic book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, said this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And does it not make sense then that every Christian who truly lives in the reality of the gospel, the gospel that was just sung about, and who really believes the words of the Bible, wouldn't we naturally display this virtue? Shouldn't that be true of us? So if we do not see that as a description of our life, then we should have a great desire to think about the command from last week, to put into practice the godly example that we see in the life of the Apostle Paul and to see what he discovered to be the secret of contentment. And we will do that this morning by organizing his example into three points. Into three points. Three parts of the life of the Apostle Paul that will help us in our desire to have that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in the kind providence of God. We will see it displayed in Paul's, number one, reason for rejoicing, number two, satisfaction in all circumstances, and number three, his source of strength. And we'll see these points as we look at these first four verses in this new section from Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Let's read that together now. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So our first point is reason for rejoicing. Reason for rejoicing, it's found right there in verse 10. Verse 10 is a bit different from the rest of the passage, and and you might even think I'm stretching this point into there, but it is clear that verses 11 through 13 are all about Paul exposing the secret of contentment and unpacking it. And even though verse 10 isn't directly tied into that point, we can still definitely see a key to contentment in the life of every true Christian when we look at why Paul says that he is rejoicing. First, we need a little bit of a background as we look and think about verse 10. Most commentators believe that at least part of Paul's purpose for this section, verses 10 through 13, is in some way or another to clear up two possible misconceptions that the Philippians might have had or were maybe tempted to have when it came to how they understood the gift that they had given to Paul. Uh, One possible misconception being that Paul might be bothered in some way that they had taken so long to send the gift. And this is what he clears up at the end of verse 10. And then in verse 11 through 13, he clears up any misconception that, that they may have about the type of desperation that he might have felt for financial help. He wants them to know that it's not that I desperately needed this. So first in verse 10, again, we read, uh, we read this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So at first glance, we might also see this as a mild rebuke. When you realize that it has probably been about 10 years or so since Paul was last in Philippi among them, uh, we, were, we, we are not sure what type of other correspondence they might have had in between that time, but even, even just the wording could almost read like, oh, so you finally remembered me, did you? Right? So some people have taken it like that, like how you might tell one of your kids, oh, how nice that you finally got around to taking out the trash after you got all the other stuff done that you wanted to do. Indeed, some people who have studied this text have read some sort of animosity or conflict between Paul and the Philippians here. And then you add to that the fact that he waits all the way until the end of the letter to say anything about the gift, and you kind of get the impression that maybe he is less than impressed and kind of rebuking them for taking so long and maybe not giving enough. However, nothing could be further from the truth. Remember that the way that most of the Philippians are going to be receiving this letter is not by sitting down and studying it themselves. Right? They don't each have their own copy of the letter that they're going to take home And look over again and again. This letter was read before the entire congregation. It was an oral presentation to them. And therefore, by saving this section for the end of the letter, Paul knows that this will be the thing that they are left with. That his appreciation for their gift to him will be the last thing that they hear before they go home. This is the same way that any oral presentation might be given, even even this one, even a sermon. We don't front load the sermon with the best points and then leave the the uninteresting stuff to the end, right? I sprinkle uninteresting stuff in throughout. 
So the, the whole point of the conclusion of a sermon, though, is, or most lessons, is to try and bring to mind the things that we want you thinking about as you leave. So there's reminders there. So by Paul leaving this section until the end, he's actually, what he's actually doing is reinforcing his love and appreciation for the Philippians. He's being sincere then when he says he rejoices in the Lord as he thinks about the manifestation of their concern for him. So now here is what is essential to the point I'm, I'm about to make. Paul qualifies in this passage that the reason he is rejoicing is not because he had his doubts that the Philippians actually cared about him, and now they're finally proving it, but rather that he is overjoyed in the work of God in the Philippians themselves. So this is the exact thing that he is making sure that they understand with that phrase at the end of 10. You were indeed concerned for me. I know you were concerned for me. You just had no opportunity. He is affirming that he knows for certain that they have always cared about him, but up until this point, they have just not had the opportunity to show it. We don't quite know the reason for why this was the case, whether it was that they, were, uh, they weren't sure of his whereabouts or they had no way to get the gift to him until Epaphroditus gave them the opportunity, or maybe they were just not in any type of position to send any substantial help until now. Whatever the case may be, Paul makes sure that they know that he knows that their heart was never in question in his mind. More to the point, that word that is translated as revived, which kind of throws people off a little bit, it should not be taken to mean that their concern for him wasn't there for a while, and then it came back. It's actually just kind of a difficult word to accurately translate into English. Uh, this is the only place in all of the entire New Testament that it's used. It's the word anathalo. Uh, and while revive or renew are actually very accurate translations, it's because this is a word from the horticultural world. And it is used to describe the re-blooming of like a perennial flower, which apparently is a flower that blooms more than once. So Paul isn't saying that your concern for me was like on life support and it needed to be revived. He has seen this gift from these dear friends of his, like, like the beautiful bloom of a flower that he is able now to enjoy once again. Like it's so wonderful now for me to once again see and experience the grace of God in your lives after not being able to see you for so long. It's like that's what he's saying. So Paul makes it clear that he is not rejoicing because the Philippians are proving something in him that he doubted. And he also goes on in the rest of these verses that we're going to look at today to make it completely obvious that he is also not rejoicing because he desperately need this gift and needed this gift from them and it arrived just in the nick of time. So what is so important for us to see then, and the reason for that introduction, is when it comes to the reason for Paul's rejoicing, is that his rejoicing is completely and totally based on his understanding of what, of not the gift, but what this gift indicates about the growth of the believers in Philippi. You can see that a little bit in verse 17, which we'll look at more fully in another time. But look at verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's joy is not in the gift itself, but it's in the fact that it signifies the spiritual growth, the 
the spiritual fruit in the lives of these fellow Christians that he loves and cares for so much. So what we see here is what I believe to be an often overlooked key to Christian contentment and why it's so important to look at it this morning. Paul is rejoicing in the spiritual growth of others. That's where his focus is. When we take our eyes off of our own lives, what we have or what we don't have, whenever, whatever the current trial might be, and then we focus intently on what God is doing in the lives of others, the evidence of God at work in the people around us, if we can do this, if we can have that same type of focus, then contentment in our lives will be the certain byproduct of that. So look how, look how Paul qualifies his rejoicing in this verse. He says that as he looks at them and what they have done and what it actually communicates, he rejoices in the Lord. So his rejoicing isn't in himself, it isn't in them and who they are, it is in the Lord and what that growth reflects about God, what the growth in them reflects about God and who he is. He can see God at work in their lives. You can see the promises and purposes, the plans of God working in them. He also says that he is rejoicing greatly. He is rejoicing greatly, and we might skip over that. This is the adverb magalos, and this is the only time Paul uses this adverbial form. And this is the only time that he uses actually any adverb to qualify his joy in the epistle. And remember that that is one of the things that this letter is known for. Remember, it's called the epistle of joy. It's called the epistle of joy because how much Paul uses words like joy and rejoicing throughout the book. Yet it is only here as he is describing the rejoicing that he is doing because of how he sees God at work in the lives of the Philippians that he qualifies his joy so strongly. I, I rejoice greatly. Remember again that Paul is in prison for the gospel. He is chained to a Roman guard. He is currently in the midst of a trial. He has also just received what is no doubt a substantial gift that's going to aid him in his mystery or in his ministry. But it is not the addition of this good gift nor the need to alleviate something bad in his life that has this great effect on his affections. Neither good nor bad. That's not what is affecting him. Paul is able to look at the spiritual fruit in the lives of these people whom he gave a considerable amount of his time and energy to, and it causes him to rejoice. He is overjoyed that the promises of God are true in the life of this body of believers. They are growing and maturing and becoming more Christ-like in their discipleship. And this is what he has been praying for them and wanted for them. He rejoices in the Lord at what he sees because this is the fulfillment of what the Lord has promised to do in his church. Paul is doing this. He has been giving his life to this ministry because he believes the promises of God. And here they are in full effect. So for many of you, this might be the most important thing that you hear today. If you're one of those people who struggles with 
being miserable and thinking through and getting discouraged all the time about whatever is going on in your life. Maybe it's because you've got a lot of bad stuff going on in your life. Because the reason why Paul is able to greatly rejoice in what is going on in the lives of the Philippians is because his life is tied to theirs. He has invested a great deal in them. So to see them growing spiritually and greatly rejoicing over it isn't just like some mental thing he has to force himself to do. I have to force myself to rejoice over these people even though I've got all this bad stuff going on. He's not merely disciplining himself to be joyful about what is going on in the lives of others. It's not a discipline for him. He has given real time, real energy, and he has suffered much for the sake of this church. So to see it growing in its desire to minister alongside of him, to see real spiritual growth in the lives of people that he has really invested in to the point that they would sacrifice for him, it really does naturally produce real and not forced rejoicing in him. So for many of us, when someone asks, how are you doing? The reasons that our minds like immediately go to our own situation in life, maybe the, the trials that we might be going through and not our joy and what we see going on in the lives of others around us is because that, that's what we're most wrapped up in, our own lives, our own trials. For an example that most of us, I think, can relate to, I recently saw a picture of Diana and I, and we were uh, when we were watching the Super Bowl, the last Super Bowl, the Broncos won together. Um, I saw a picture of us, and I, my face was all red, and my eyes were puffy, and I'd forgotten that I was pretty miserably sick that day. And when I thought back on it, like, like going through like a bag of cough drops and a box of Kleenex a day type of sick. Yet, I'm pretty sure that if you would have asked me at the end of that night how I was doing, I would have said, I'm doing great. And I wouldn't have been lying, even though I was sick, but what would I have meant by that? Well, I would have meant that because I was so wrapped up in the successful athletic achievements by a group of individuals in another state, I was actually doing great. Even though physically I personally felt terrible, I'm pretty sure I went to bed happy that night. So I'm guessing that most of us, many of us can relate to something like that, and we can see then Right, can't you? That what Paul is doing here is not actually something that you're unable to do. It's not because he's, you know, super Paul that he can do that. You probably do this too, just in other areas. It just maybe doesn't come as regularly for us because we're not as invested in the lives of other believers as we ought to be. But I'm sure, right, you can think of a similar spiritual scenario, maybe in the lives of your children, that would cause you to say that you're doing great no matter what type of trials you might be going through. If you were sick, maybe, or if you just lost your job, or you had your car stolen, or even, even if you had something as severe as a terminal diagnosis. But your son or your daughter or your brother or sister, mother, father, someone who you've been an unbeliever you've been praying for over and over and over again. They come to you and they're remorseful over their sin. And now they're repenting with tears and they're embracing Jesus as their Savior. I bet if I came to you in that moment and said, how are you doing? You would say something along the lines of, I am great. I am rejoicing in the Lord greatly right now. 
Would you not? So for many of you, this is the first and most significant step you can take in having real Christian contentment, to get much more involved in the life of the church and the discipleship ministry of actual people who are here around you. And I know this, you got this out there. Yes, the opposite is true also. Sometimes being really connected to people causes you to be in pain when you normally wouldn't be. You feel the spiritual discipline that takes place in the church in a much more painful way than when you were just sitting on the fringe. But I can assure you that because the promise of God to build His church is true, because it's His promise, then you can be assured that it will regularly be a far greater means of joy and contentment in your life than it ever will be Sadness and discouragement. I promise. And that brings us to a second point. The second point, each of these points is, is related to one another. But our second point is satisfied in all circumstances. Satisfied in all circumstances. So in order to follow the example of Paul, to see the secret of contentment, we need to first adjust our reason for rejoicing, and secondly, we need to understand how we can have satisfaction in all circumstances, or at least understand that we're supposed to. Let's look again at what Paul says here in verses 11 and 12. He says, now that I, not, not that I am speaking of being in need, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul, again, immediately, in in verse 11, corrects a possible misunderstanding by making sure that the Philippians understand that his joy has nothing to do with thinking that the Philippians' gift met some sort of need in his life. Like, had they not given this gift to them, to him, I, I might not have make, made it. He, he wants to make sure they know that he is not thinking that way. And he's not being negative and making light of their gift, but as a good minister, he wants to make sure that they understand this principle that he's about to teach them. And he possibly wants, especially coming in the light of his command to follow his example, and he possibly wants to make sure that he isn't coming across like he needs them to give more. So how different he is, right, than every single personality who's ever been on TBN, every one of those you know, charlatan false prophets that make a mockery of Christ in his church that Justin Peters is going to bring to our attention at the conference. But if you look back to, like if you look at uh, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4, I'll just real quick look at them. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then also look at verse 19 later on, down further, where Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So so you take those two verses together, and you can kind of understand something we've talked about before, that the Philippians are probably in the midst of some sort of trial, that makes giving like this difficult. It is really a sacrifice for them. So Paul is using this situation to instruct them on how they should be thinking through the difficult circumstances that they are in also. 
And notice the key action that we see, the, the verb we see in both of these verses. In verse 11, it says that I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. And in verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In order for Paul to be content, he had to learn. He had to learn. So first we see that it says that he had to learn that in whatever situation was, he was in, he was to be content. And so, unfortunately, how was Paul able to learn this? Well, it's because he endured some really bad situations. And he was able to see God continue to be good, though, and lead him through them. So in 2 Corinthians 11, and Paul recounts some of these experiences. You, can, you don't have to turn there, but you can think along as I read them. These are some of the circumstances he had to be, learn to be content in. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. So these are the types of situations that Paul is talking about when he says that in every situation I have learned to be content. Just think about that for a second. I learned to be content as I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes plus one. I've learned to be content while being beaten with rods, even you know when it got to the third time that happened. I've learned to be content while having people throw stones at me until I was presumed dead. I've learned to be content when I am shipwrecked. Again, no matter how many times that might happen, second shipwreck, third shipwreck, learning to be content in those. I've learned to be content when I'm adrift at sea. That's the scariest one for me. For over 24 hours, can you imagine just floating on a piece of wood in the pitch black of night in the sea? All night. Not knowing what might be under you. Right? I've, I have learned to be content. And look at how many times he said danger. There, dangerous situations all over. I might find myself in hardships, robbers in the wilderness, being without food or being cold, in danger of dying from exposure. And even now, in the midst, he's he's writing these words while being a Roman prisoner. And he said, "I've," he says, "I've learned to be content in all of these situations." He's content in these situations. And our passage also says that he knows. It says he knows how to be brought low and to abound. It says he knows how. That means Paul, when it says knows, Paul has a conviction that based on his past experiences, he now knows how a Christian is to respond to either of these types of extreme circumstances. I know what it is to be brought low, and I know what it is to abound. So you can see the two categories of the two extremes of life that he expands on in verse 12. What it means to be brought low corresponds with, of course, being in hunger and being in need. What it means to abound corresponds with what it means to have plenty or an abundance. And you can see the connection there in those verses, why we're taking them together. 
These are two categories of life that Paul had to face, situations where he had to learn. We've just heard some of those examples of when he has uh, been in times of need and in hunger. We're not quite sure which situations he's talking about in abounding or having plenty of abundance, but we know that things were not always like horrible for Paul. He wasn't always adrift at sea. He might not ever have been rich, but he had lots of times where he wasn't worried about where he would sleep or what he would eat. Plus, we know that since he is, like we talked about earlier, so invested in the lives of those whom he has ministered to, he has had many times where he has been abounding in joy as he watches people get saved and watches the church expand, the joy of seeing some of those whom he has worked so closely with, like Titus and Timothy, watching them grow and become trusted pastors. So what we need to see here is what the net results of all of these experiences has been for Paul. As he faces the good times in life, and especially as he faces the difficulties, what, he, what, what, what is he taking out of each situation? The, the undeniable result is that as Paul has gone through life, as he has faced every situation, he has grown in his confidence in God's plan in God's promises and God's providence. Paul has looked at his extremely complicated and difficult life with all of the unbelievably hard circumstances, and it's only given him a greater and greater confidence in God and a greater love and a greater desire to serve him and to one day be in his presence you can see what the effect of a lifetime of being content in every situation has led to in the life of Paul just by examining his words in this book. So let's just take a moment, take some time and, and, and see in these words and some of the stuff that Paul has said, what it sounds like when someone has lived a life where they have refused to focus on all the bad stuff going on and instead sees everything that happens as an opportunity to learn, to trust, and to serve God even more. These are the type of things that someone like that says. Look at one twelve. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So he sees perceived negative circumstances as part of the good plan of God for advancing the kingdom. Look back at 119. 119, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he has an understanding of the power of prayer and confidence in the Spirit despite his circumstances. Look at 120 and 21, the next two verses. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He is confident, Paul is confident that whether he lives or dies, Christ will be honored and he will be glorified through his life or his death. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. For it has been granted to you, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So Paul understands that God has allowed them to believe and his life has led him to the understanding that Suffering can be a gift. Suffering is a gift for the Christian. 
Look at 2, 9, and 10. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, on Jesus, the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he has this eschatological hope in God. God has highly exalted Jesus Christ in every single tongue, no matter what they might be saying now, no matter how they might boast now, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So no matter what is going on, God is currently at work in you, and it is, and it is for his will, and it is to work for God's good pleasure. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So yes, Paul understands. We, we live in a, I know, I understand that we do live in a crooked and twi twisted generation. And it is here that God has called us to do everything without grumbling or complaining so that we can shine as lights to them. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So, so Paul understands even, even if his life is to be poured out right now, even if that's what his life is used for, it is as if it was a drink offering and a sacrificial offering on your faith. And he says, I am glad and I rejoice to do it. Look at verses 29 and 30 of chapter 2. He says, so receive him in the Lord. He's talking about Epaphroditus. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So this life that Paul has lived, where he's trusting, where he's content in all circumstances, it causes him to, to rejoice in Epaphroditus and says that the one who risks his life and nearly dies for the work of Christ. He's not a fool. He's to be honored. Look at 3, 12, and 13. Paul sounds like this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He sees his life as a race. He understands his life to be a race worth live, giving all of his exertion to, pressing on, straining forward. He is willing to exert himself to his physical limits for the sake of Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he, Paul, understands, he has confidence, he believes that this world is not my true home, it's not your true home. Our true citizenship is in heaven, and Jesus Christ is really coming back, and he really will transform our bodies to be like his body. Look at chapter 4, verse 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Again, Paul is one. He, his circumstances in life, his, 
His learning to be content in every situation has made him the type of person that can rejoice in the Lord always. It is always appropriate, Paul believes, no matter what's going on, to rejoice in the Lord. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying there is is nothing in this life that is worth being anxious over. Nothing in this life worth being anxious over. But in fact, all things are worthy of prayer. And there's always reason to be thankful. And if you'll just realize this, you will see the peace of God. And it's a peace that surpasses all understanding, guarding your hearts and your minds, and let's remember what we talked about last week in 4 verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul can say, Paul is now the type of person who can say without a second thought, take everything that you have learned from me and everything that you have seen in me and practice them. And the God of peace will be with you as he is with me. And then look, look at verse 19 of chapter 4. Paul says confidently, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Again, we see the confidence that Paul Paul has that anything that is a true need in the lives of his children, he will always meet that need. Don't you want to be able to sound like Paul? in all of the circumstances, in every area that you find in your life. This is what it sounds like when someone lives their life in such a way that they are content in all circumstances because they have an unwavering trust in the plan of God and a deep joy that can never be extinguished because they can never get over the kindness of God in the gospel that saved them. Paul is able to have this outlook on all of life because instead of being discouraged in the face of trials and focusing on the temporal, he has come to see a sovereign God at work in every single situation for his own glory and for the good of his people. He has come to recognize the absolute night and day difference between what the world tells us is necessary and what in light of eternity is actually necessary. Words of Jeremiah Burroughs, I think, are helpful again. He says, My brethren, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of the world is not that you do not have enough of them. The reason is that they are not things proportional to the immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Christ teaches a Christian that one thing is necessary. Burroughs continues. I see that it is not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to make my peace with God. It is not necessary that I should live a pleasurable life in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that I should have pardon of my sin. It is not necessary that I should have honor and preferment, but it is necessary that I should have God as my portion and have my part in Jesus Christ. It is necessary that my soul should be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. The other things are pretty fine indeed, and I should be glad if God would give me them, a fine house, income, clothes, advancement for my wife and children. These are comfortable things, but they are not necessary things. I may have these and yet perish forever, but the other, the other is absolutely necessary. 
This is how true contentment comes. When we are able to be satisfied, no matter what circumstances we may be in, because we are able to see all of our experiences through the lens of eternity like Paul was able to. And we, when we are not deceived by the, by the advertising schemes and the cries of this culture about what we actually need, we know who is truly necessarily, and we gladly give our lives to him. So how do we get to that point? How is it possible to follow Paul's example in this? Well, we are told by Paul that he has learned the secret of being able to confidently know how to live this way. And that brings us to our final point, our third point, a source of strength, a source of strength. And this really is how we need to see Philippians 4.13. It's one of the most recognizable verses in the Bible. We need to see it as the answer for how to be content. This is not a blanket statement that God will give you the strength to do anything that you can think of. It is not about getting superpowers. It is not about achieving our dreams or winning athletic competitions. Don't take your theology from the eye black under Tim Tebow's eyes. That is not what this verse is about. Verses 12 and 13 are actually the same sentence in the Greek. So that should clue us in. So verse 13 is the answer to the secret that Paul says that he has learned. Paul is saying that I can face any and every circumstance with contentment through the strength of Christ. That's, what, that's who the in him is. If Paul suddenly decided that he wanted to make a blanket statement that indicated that Christ would give us the power to accomplish our dreams or to get the job promotion that we want, then the implication would be that verse 12 means that Paul knew the secret for content living, but he was not going to share it. If verse 13 means what it is commonly understood to mean, then we're left wondering in verse 12, what's the secret, Paul? And that's clearly not what Paul is doing. Verse 13 has a definite application, and you could even apply it to a sports situation, but the more consistent and truthful application would be if a Christian athlete were to suffer a career-ending injury before they ever took the field, and then they were strengthened through their faith in Christ to endure the trial and grow and joyfully accept it as part of his plan for their life. That would be a good sports illustration for this verse. Paul wants us moving into verse 13, anticipating the answer to what this secret is. How, Paul, how is it possible to live this way? And the word that is translated as secret, it's, a, it's another unique word, again, used only here in the entirety of the New Testament. And, th and that is actually for good reason, because it's a word that was primarily used in cultic religions. It was a mystical term that had to do with initiation into religions, the cultic religions. And here Paul is using it to kind of, kind of playing on that and kind of invoking that same type of thinking in order to heighten our anticipation of what the secret is. And it's actually kind of crazy because that mystical sense is the same way uh, the English word secret uh, was used in the title of that extremely popular self-help book in 2006, the book The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. It's, it's actually one of the highest-selling self-help books of all time. I think it's number four right now. The secret in that book claims to help you in the exact opposite way that Paul is trying to help us here. 
According to that book, the secret is, and I'm going to spoil it for you, the secret is the law of attraction. And the author claims that applying the secret, the law of attraction, will make positive things happen in your life. And this is done by thinking positive thoughts and saying positive words. It was a bestseller in not only the self-help section, but also the religious section, because that is just a spiritual, that is spiritual talk. If you just believe that good things will happen, good things will happen. In fact, her three steps of the law of attraction are asking, number one, asking, number two, believing, number three, receiving. You're supposed to speak as though you already possess what it is that you desire. But if you just believe something enough, you can make it happen. And that actually sounds exactly like how so many false Christians apply this verse. They use Philippians 4.13 and verses like it, but instead of calling it the law of attraction, if you'll just ask and believe and receive and trust, instead of saying it's the law of attraction, they say it's God who will then bring positive things into your life. But Paul's point could not be farther away from this type of thinking, even though he uses a mystical term for dramatic effect. Paul says, the secret to how to handle times where you are low or where you are hungry or in need isn't to believe that God is going to raise you up and make you full or give you abundance. Actually, according to Paul, all of those situations have dangers as well, and they can easily lead to more discontentment. Right? That's why Paul indicates that contentment is needed in those situations also. Rather, Paul is saying, no matter how high or low, no matter the plenty or want, no matter the abundance or need, I am in Christ. I am in Christ. And living out of that truth is the secret for living in every one of those situations. It does not matter what circumstances I am in as long as I am in Christ. Because the goal of my life is not better circumstances. Christ in you immediately transforms every circumstance you could ever face, not into a positive-for-you circumstance, but instead into what you actually desire if you are in Him into an opportunity to know Him better, to trust Him more, to love Him even more. The opportunity to become more like Jesus Christ. This is not a promise to accomplish all of my dreams, but a promise that I can be fully obedient and pleasing to God no matter what situation I am in. That's the promise. That's what He strengthens you to. I'm in a place of strength, well, he can reveal my weakness so that I'll trust in him more. If I am in a place of weakness, he strengthens me to understand my high standing in him. So, So do you see how this then is the answer, how this is the secret? If you're living your life out of your union with Christ, and if you can see along with Paul the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, if you can say that along with him, if that is truly what you are living for, then you can see how you are empowered to handle and encounter 
every situation imaginable because whether abundance or need, it is another opportunity to magnify Christ and grow in grace. And if the surpassing worth of Christ is truly our greatest treasure, if that is you, if it's truly your greatest treasure, then the world has lost any and all power to ever entice you into anything. This is the strength that we have in Christ. We just sang about it, right? No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So friends, let us follow the example of Paul that we see in this passage before us today by living out of our union in Christ. Being so overjoyed in the truth of the gospel that we see Christ as the treasure of surpassing worth. We would lose everything for. And when he occupies this place in our thinking and in our affections, we will be able to embrace every situation that we're in because we know that it is just another situation that our loving Heavenly Father has placed us in and has sovereignly decided that this, this situation right now is where God has me to trust him and to obey him. And this is what he's going to use to draw me closer to him. And if we are those whose greatest rejoicing is not in the good in our own lives, but the work of God in and among his church, and therefore we use whatever circumstances that God might have us in for the sake of his purpose and his plan and his people, then we too will be able to say along with Paul that we know that not only through the word of God, but now through the experience of his faithfulness in our own lives, we will be able to say along with Paul, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. Through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful once again for the example of Paul. And we can read about this example and, and see in him something that is not impossible for any of us. And in fact, something that he expects of all of those in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Father God, I pray that Grace Church, that the members of Grace Church would be marked by these things. That we would be those who are wrapped up completely in the lives of others so that we are rejoicing, truly rejoicing, no matter what's going on in our lives. As we see them grow and become more like Jesus. Lord, that we would be content in all of our circumstances, whether they're good circumstances, that we would be content so that we would not boast and so that we would not brag and we would not stop trusting in you, that we would be content in those circumstances or whether they're difficult, that we would continue to rely on you in those circumstances. And God, that we would be strengthened by Christ 
and through our union with Jesus, that we would that we would live out of that. That that would be the grid through which we view everything, so that we can joyfully embrace any and every circumstance, knowing that it will be used to make us more like you, to advance the king, your kingdom, and to bring you glory. Oh, Father, that we would be content, truly content in those things. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.